0: Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. If you're new, welcome and thanks for joining us. If not, welcome back. We are in Genesis chapter 26 today. And this is kind of a paradox passage. On one level, uh, you have all these stories about Abraham and then Abraham dies. And then you've got uh, 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 one chapter on Isaac and then all these stories about Jacob. So on one level, it seems that not much is going on with Isaac. He's kind of like the patriarch ellipses. He's like a speed bump in the patriarchal road, just a transition figure or something. But really, there's a lot going on in this passage, and we're going to get into all the nitty-gritty detail here and look at the narrative God is revealing with this transition from Abraham to Jacob and what's going on with Isaac in between. So back at the beginning of the story of Abraham, he builds an altar. And God shows up and promises him that the whole world will be blessed through his offspring. What's really interesting here is God is fulfilling this promise, not through Abraham himself, but through Abraham's children. As the story moves on, Abraham and Lot are in Canaan, and there's not enough room, and there's not enough food and water for all their herds, and so they go in separate directions. And then a low point comes for for Abraham. And there's this story that doesn't really seem to fit with the rest, and we didn't really cover it uh, in these past few weeks, but there's this bit about Abraham and this guy named Abimelech, who is from Gerar. And Abimelech is the king of the Philistines, and Abraham gives Sarah to him as a wife, claiming she is his sister. This is in Genesis 20, which is really weird, right? And from what I can tell, it just seems like he really messes up here. Abraham's story is kind of tarnished. And then there's everything between Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar and Ishmael, and then more stuff between Ishmael and Isaac, and then we get to this point where Abraham dies. And so now we're in Genesis 26, where it says, now there was a famine in the land. And that statement, a famine in the land, that kind of cues you into the fact that this story is not going to be an easy one. It's gonna get hard, it's gonna get a little dicey. So uh, in Genesis 26, now there was a famine in the land, Besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt, live in the land where I tell you to live, stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed." Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. So the interesting thing is, did Isaac learn this lesson from his father Abraham? Like, there's no way he would make the same mistakes that his dad did, right? Well, so God tells Isaac, I want you to stay where you are, but there's a famine which makes things hard. And God says to Isaac, stay here anyway. And he's like, but God wouldn't want me to have difficult circumstances, would He? Kind of like, not unlike us. And the question God always seems to be asking is this How do I get my family back to the promise I originally made to Abraham? How do I get you back to the oath that I swore to Abraham? So God reminds Isaac of the promise he made to his dad. And at the end, he says, Because Abraham obeyed me, you're part of this promise as well. So, it's made clear here that God is blessing Isaac because of Abraham. So if you're a parent out there, maybe maybe you ought to pay attention to that. Maybe part of the fulfillment of God's blessing uh, in my life isn't in my life. Maybe a large part of that blessing manifests itself in my children's lives. For instance, there's this other example uh, later on in the narrative after the King after King David, because Solomon, And how he acted, God came to him and said, I'm going to tear the the kingdom in two because of you. But God says to him, not in your lifetime, but because of the faithfulness of your father, David, it's going to happen later. So you see that kind of play out in reverse there. So maybe we ought to pay attention to what God says to Isaac here, because the promise he's telling Isaac about happened at least half a century before it was fulfilled with his dad. In other words, there's a very real reality for you and for me that your faithfulness shows up as a blessing in the life of your children. And even your faithfulness before you're married, if you're not married yet, and even before you know who you're gonna marry, before you even ever have kids, your righteousness today sets the stage for the kids that you won't have, you know, however long from now in the future. And parents and grandparents, it's never too late to keep building that runway, a platform, a launching pad for faithfulness and righteousness for your kids and your grandkids and your great grandkids. And I've got good news for you, God's faithfulness for you was providing blessing for you way before you were born. So relax. God has you. It's, it's his story and he's telling it. Well, let's read on starting in verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she's my wife. He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. Now, does that sound familiar? Yeah, his dad did this in Egypt with Sarah as well. So you have this promise that comes uh, way earlier, and then there's an altar that's built, and then there's crying out to the Lord, and God makes a promise. And there's Lot and the shepherds and the flocks, and they have to separate them. And then we have this low point where Abraham gives Sarah to Abimelech as well. And if we fast forward to Isaac's narrative, he's in this same place. So... It says that Isaac lived in Gerar, and when the men who lived there asked about his wife, he said, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking the men who live there are going to kill me because Rebekah is very beautiful. And then verse 8, after Isaac had lived there for some time, the Philistines, uh, King Abimelech, looked out his window and saw Isaac laughing together with his wife Rebekah. And we're going to stop there, right right there for a second, because uh, to say this, laughing, laughing doesn't mean laughing. He doesn't, Abimelech doesn't figure out the deception Abraham, or that Isaac has has wrought here uh, because they were laughing. So verse 9, Abimelech summons Isaac and says, she's your wife, isn't she? How could you say she's my sister? And Isaac responded, because I thought that I might be killed because of her. Abimelech said, what are you trying to do to us? Before long, one of the people would have slept with your wife and you would have made us guilty. Abimelech gave orders to all the people. Anyone who touches this man or his wife will be put to death. Then it says, Isaac planted grain in that land in verse 12, Isaac planted grain in that land and reaped 100 sherim or 100 fold that year because the Lord had blessed him. And we kind of skip over that kind of thing because we don't really know what's going on there, but here's what's going on. Where have we heard this before? If you read the last part of Genesis 20, you'll see what happened to Abraham when he encountered Abimelech with Sarah. So here in this, in this chapter, Isaac reaps a hundredfold of what he's planted, and that's really important to understand because in this land, fivefold is a good return. Tenfold would be considered an insane and unheard of amount. Twentyfold would be have been just absolutely miraculous. Now here's the map of Gerar. It's between Gaza and Masada, which is by the Dead Sea. Just to give you a picture of what this land looks like, here's a photo. First of all, do you see any level ground? And second, what about water? And that's the Dead Sea way off in the distance in the haze. Here's another photo taken from the top of Masada. It's like where I grew up in Arizona, but you know, I don't know what it would be the equivalent of here in Washington. It's kind of way worse than the Dust Bowl area way up east north of the Cascades by Winthrop, which is just blah. So in Garrar, it rains less than two inches a year. Nobody was planting who was planting crops would ever think that a hundredfold could happen. It's just not possible. A side note here, Jesus tells this really interesting story about a sower who went out to sow some seed and some fell on the path and some fell on the rocks and some fell on the thorns and some of it fell on the good soil and it produced 30 and 60 and 100 fold of what was sown, which I find really interesting because there's only one other place in the whole Bible where this term 100 fold is used and it's right here, which raises the question, why in the world is this story about Isaac, the main point of Jesus's parable. It's like he has this story in mind and we'll have to investigate it in that another time. But there's another good question. Now that you've seen what the lamb looks like in these photos, why is anybody ever fighting over this place? <laughs> so verse 13, moving on, it says, Isaac got richer and richer until he was extremely wealthy. And the question is, why was he being made wealthy? Well, we know the promise in order to be a blessing to all the nations. Because that's the promise that was given to Abraham. So he's being made wealthy for that purpose. So God is reminding and bringing Isaac back to that promise, the promise that his dad was given. Verse 14, he had livestock, both flocks and cattle, and many servants, and as a result, the Philistines envied him. The Philistines closed up and filled with dirt all the wells that his father's servants had dug during his father Abraham's lifetime, which doesn't sound like a genius move. Anyway, verse 16, Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us because you've become too powerful among us. So Isaac moved away from there, camped in the valley of Gerar and lived there. Isaac dug out again the wells that were dug during the lifetime of his father Abraham. So this sounds a little bit familiar. There's people who are saying we need to separate because there's not enough room for our herds and there's this big issue of water, kind of like what went on with Abraham and Lot. So To to show this, uh, how how it's similar, here's the chart. You get down to the end and Abraham and, and Lot separate because the shepherds are fighting about water. So you have this story of Abraham and Abimelech and this story of Isaac and Abimelech and there's this quarreling of water at the end and it shows a pattern here that shows how God is getting Isaac back to this promise. Verse 18, Isaac dug out again the wells that were dug during the lifetime of his father Abraham. The Philistines had closed them up after Abraham's death. Isaac gave them the same names his father had given them. So verse 19, Isaac's servants dug wells in the valley and found a well there with fresh water. Some translations call it spring water. So this is different right here. This is not just a cistern that you have to dig and there's water in the bottom. This this is a, a well that replenishes itself. What would a well like this be worth in the middle of a desert like that. So, verse 20, Isaac's shepherds argued with Gerar's shepherds, each claiming, this is our water, which sounds really familiar. So, Isaac named the well Esek because they quarreled with him. They dug another well and argued about it too, so he named that Sitna. He left there and dug another well, but they didn't argue about it, so he named it Rehoboth and said, Now the Lord has made an open space for us and has made us fertile in the land. So what i find fantastic about isaac is he's in this land that god told him belongs to him and when the people get angry with him he's like no problem well i'll move yeah we all know my dad dug these wells and then you filled them in and then we dug them back out but no problem you can have it what does it take for someone to be like that to be like isaac seriously like if isaac was us he would not do this. He'd be like, this is my right to be here and I am taking you to court. So in the midst of this, while he's being promised something, he's still trusting that promise even when things get difficult. And he moves again and he moves again. And the question for us is this, where and when do we trust that God's promises are being worked out in our lives? You know, like when we're wronged, you know, in, in our culture, it says it's my right. This is my right to this. So how about being faithful even when your rights are taken away from you? That's called being faithful. Verse 23, Then he went up from Gerar to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Don't be afraid because I am with you. I will bless you and I will give you many children for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there and worshipped in the Lord's name, which we've heard before, something like this. Isaac then pitched his tent there, and his servants dug a well. Now, Isaac has, at this point, gotten back to the promise. God's speaking to him, and he's like, look, this is what it's all about. That all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of him, so that they will know and understand who God is. So let's see what happens next. Verse 26, But Abimelech set out toward him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his ally, and Fechal, the commander of his forces. Isaac said to him, Why have you come after me? You resented me and sent me away from you. And I love this. This is how Isaac feels about what's going on in the midst of his staying faithful to God's promise. He's like, I'm frustrated. I love this because I know we can all relate to it. What he's experiencing is this. This sucks. Why the heck is this happening? I am being faithful. I am giving everything to this. I am all in. I am sacrificing everything. Why does nothing keep working out? Nothing is going my way. I'm not seeing any fruit. Why do I keep being mistreated? I'm doing the right thing. Why isn't this working out? And I think that's really powerful here because I think maybe there's a lesson there for us because I don't know about you, but uh, we don't like being faithful to the Lord in in messy places, in the places that are difficult and hard. What we like to do in the messy places is say, God, where the heck are you? You have abandoned me. Where are you? You said you'd be with me and you'd work it out and bless me. And what we don't like is the big kind of suck sandwich that we got to eat in order to get there. Like I'm throwing seed, and I'm throwing seed and I'm watering it and I'm sowing it and I keep sowing it, but the tide keeps going out. Come on, Lord, step up. You said you would show up. You said it and you're not. And that's what we're seeing here. this He's like, these people hate me. And maybe there's a lesson there for for me, and maybe there's a lesson there for you, that in the midst of being faithful to God's promise in our life, sometimes it's just really hard. And the main problem is if we don't get on the other side of that difficult, hard thing, we're never gonna reap a hundredfold. If we don't keep the soil of our heart good with God, we don't ever get to see a hundredfold blessing of God. And maybe we miss out, not because God was never gonna do something miraculous, but because we bail out too soon. And maybe there's a lesson there. Verse 28 says, they said, we now see that the Lord was with you. And that's interesting. What does that mean? It means because Isaac acted in a way that brought honor to his God, even in the midst of some really difficult situations where he kept getting getting pushed away and pushed out, even then he acted in a way that brought honor to his God. In other words, when we're faithful in the middle of the unfair, unlooked for, difficult situations, people can see God. And maybe that's worth it. Maybe the way we change the world isn't so much the evidence of the blessing of God as much as it is the faithfulness to wait for it. And then when it comes, there's no ignoring it. So this is what they said, verse 28. They said, we now see that the Lord was with you. We propose that there be a formal agreement between us and that we draw up a treaty or covenant with you. You must not treat us badly since we haven't harmed you and since we have treated you well at all times, which is just hysterically comical. It truly is fake news when they say this. It is a total lie. You know, we we pushed you out of, of your house, of your home, over and over and over again. We treated you fine, except for that. And then we will send you away peacefully for we're now blessed by the Lord, it says. Isaac prepared a banquet for them, and then they ate and drank. And you're like, what? He even sat down and made a meal for them? Because, you know what this is? It's, we, you read it, you read it in the English, you read it today, and you just go, oh, and they sat down and they ate together. They just ate together, right? No! This is probably Isaac's greatest act of faithfulness to God's promise. What you need to understand back then, and totally unlike today, you don't eat. With your enemies. In order for Isaac to do this, he must forgive them. And that's the part that's hard for me. Maybe it's hard for you too. I mean, we love the vindication story. We love hearing uh, or watching a good uh, vindication story. Like when somebody is mistreated over and over and over again, the person who's done all the bad stuff has some kind of heart change and comes back on their hands and knees and they're pleading for forgiveness. You know, they're groveling or when somebody does something really bad and then they get what's coming to them. But that's not what happens here. They come to Isaac and they take responsibility for nothing. They own none of it. We were good to you as we kicked you out of your home is what they say. So you need to treat us good. <laughs> if that were you or me, we'd be like, you want some treatment? I got some treatment for you, like, like John, John Wick style or something. They come recognizing that Isaac is the person in power now. He has the authority in the relationship. He is the suzerain now, and they are down here. Remember that struggle with authority that we talked about before? God brings, he's bringing him back to that promise. Like if you're up in authority, in this position of authority, and his first act in this position of authority is what? It's forgiveness. Those who are high up make themselves low to raise the lowly up. So his first act is not like Sarah and Hagar. This is the moment where he has the right to make them pay. And he doesn't. He has the ability and the capacity, and he probably has the desire to make them pay. And what he does is, he brings them in, and he forgives them. Because that's what God's people do. And that's a big deal, my friends, because that right there, that'll change the world. That will change the world. Well let's move on. Verse 31. They got up early in the morning and they gave each other their word. Isaac sent them off and they left peacefully. That day Isaac's servants informed him about the well that they had been digging and said to them, said to him, We found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the city's name has been Beersheba until today. Now There's a weird statement at the very end in verse 34. It says, When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Bere the Hittite, and Bazmat, daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life very difficult for Isaac and Rebekah. I want you to consider this story in a lot of different ways. It's about God's faithfulness when we don't see it. This story is about the fact that just because I don't feel God at work, doesn't mean he, He isn't working. This story is about the fact that just because I don't feel like God is working, like I'm not getting my way, and my way isn't evil. I just want to be happy. If God would just swoop in and fix everything, right, and fix everybody around me, and we could all get along better. Not that I have any work to do in myself, but if God could fix, you know, everyone else, maybe the mess, I mean, really here, maybe the mess of the journey is part of what helps the resolve of God fulfilling his promise be so powerful. So for those of you who don't have kids that will maybe never have kids, there's a message in here for you too, because this just it, just it isn't just about your family legacy. This is about fidelity to a task that blesses the world because God promised it would. Whether you like it or not, or whether you see it or not, God is in the business of redeeming people's stories. And even in your mess, maybe especially in your mess and in my mess, when we're faithful, God redeems the stories of people around us. So to finish out this part of the narrative, let's consider some important kind of conclusions we can draw from from what we've covered. And the first one is this. God wants to redeem every story. God takes Abraham's biggest mistake and this mistake from Isaac, the point where he's probably furthest away from God's promise, and he... He begins Isaac's story there and he moves him back towards the promise that was always true and is always going to be true, that God is working redemptively all the time. And the question is, will we hang in there long enough to see the redemption, to see the fruit? Because we all know this, when, when you're living your life and you're trying to be faithful, people don't always see what you're doing as faithfulness and it's hard to keep going because sometimes people see it as a lot of different things. Sometimes they treat you badly when you act faithful. Sometimes they treat you really badly, which leads to a second thought here. Not everyone sees God when you act righteously. I mean, Isaac was displaced from his home and then displaced from his home again because he's acting righteously, and he graciously moves, and then he's moved again. So just because you act righteously doesn't mean everybody's going to see it as righteous. They might even take advantage of you, which brings up the next implication, which is be righteous anyway. Because it's not about people's perceptions or the circumstances that are going around you that determines whether or not God is going to fulfill his promises in your life. Be righteous anyway, even when others don't understand it, or even when they call you names for it, or even when they get angry with you. Be righteous anyway. And that leads us to our last kind of a ramification here. Isaac reaped the harvest that Abraham sowed. And that's what the scriptures teach us time and again. What are you and I sowing for our children? What are you sowing for the next generation? This is a really powerful thing because we don't often think about the results of our faithfulness in the lives of our kids or their friends or our friends' kids or the kids of others at church or the kids of others in your neighborhood. We all know that kids have their own free will and they're gonna do what they're gonna do. But as far as for you, what's the legacy that you're leaving for your children? and your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren? What are the stories of your righteousness and your faithfulness that they're gonna tell? Or are they gonna tell other stories? And this is true even if you don't have kids, or if you don't know who you're gonna marry down the line, or even if you never have children, because your legacy matters. The ripple effects of your life are gonna echo in, in the generations to come. Like for me, I love, I love having parents who were the real deal, they still are. My parents' legacy isn't a legacy of 45 plus years of wedded bliss, and the same for my, for my in-laws. Beth's and mine isn't the same either after 20, nearly 21 years. It's not always peaceful. For my parents and my in-laws, and, and for me and Beth, sometimes, some of it, some of our stories are really hard. But it is a legacy of faithfulness to God that before him, we would all say, I choose you and no other. And we've watched our parents leave that legacy. And because of that, I think my and Beth's marriage has been blessed and made stronger so that we stay faithful to each other and we don't walk away when it gets hard because we can't. We, do you get it? Because that's not what our family is about. The ripple effect of righteousness from our parents echoes down upon us and that legacy matters. And the times when it feels like everything is hanging from a, from a thread, There are times for us in all of our worlds where it's just easier to cut the strings and kind of walk away, I get that. But faithfulness to God's tasks reaps a harvest of blessing to those we have led, to those we'll influence, to those that we're raising, and it matters, it's worth it. Even if it never changes anything in my own story, because that's what the Christian life is all about. It's about remembering that we serve a God who will lay it all down without needing to take it back up because you're worth it, because you matter to him, because the story that he's telling needs to be told in a particular way. We'll leave it there for now. Until next time, my friends, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus. Produce good fruit. Show up. Trust the hope be faithful.